0: Good morning. My name is Doug Hill, and I'm an elder here at Grace Presbyterian Church. Uh, as you know from that lengthy introduction by our pastor, Ryan Baker. I would say that if you're a visitor, you should come back and hear what's normal. Uh, come back and hear him preach. Uh, thank you to the music team. You know, when I, when I come up here and speak, I don't like to sing loudly, because uh, I'll just waste my voice, right, for this. Curse them. They did so well, I just sang loudly anyway. So, hopefully, my voice won't give out. Um, So, um, before my current job, I was an English teacher. I taught seniors uh, for 10 years at Guthrie. And uh, we taught how to write essays. And one of the poor ways of starting an essay is by asking a question. It's a little corny by the time you're a senior. So, I'm going to start. This sermon with a question. And the question is, what should the normal Christian life look like? How would you answer that? We can read books and hear stories about amazing Christians, but what about the rest of us? What should our life look like? I was reading Romans several weeks ago. As I read the first part of chapter 5, I thought, you know, this is as good a place as any that describes the normal Christian life. And then I thought... I'm an old charismatic, and so is my wife. Any other old former charismatics in here? Okay, there's a few. So uh, Watchman Nee, a Chinese church leader in the early part of the 20th century, wrote a famous book called The Normal Christian Life. I thought of that. Um, I noticed Ricky Jones in Tulsa did a series, Everyday Christianity, uh, recently. I know uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Mere Christianity. Mere, or Basic Christianity. Christianity, answering the question, what does the normal Christian life look like? And I also feel that um, there's, there's many various identity crises going on right now in our culture. I don't know why. I don't begin to know why. But I know people are asking the questions, and these are good questions, who am I? What, does a, what should a Christian man look like in today's society? What should a Christian woman look like? What is America? I mean, these are all identity questions. And so I think it's okay. It's fair to ask the identity question. What does the basic Christian life look like? Okay, so we're going to talk about Romans 5 1 to 5. And these verses are full of amazing things. But I don't think they're above us. I don't think they're only for those, what do you want to call them, like incredibly devoted disciples. Or we would say those who've been given much more grace than us. I could never live that way. Um, Right, so before we get into Romans 5, let me give you a quick summary of Romans 1 through 4. Now, if you're a Roman scholar, this is really brief, okay? Romans chapter 1, all Gentiles are sinners. Romans chapter 2, all Jews are sinners. That means all of us are sinners, everyone. Romans chapter 3, salvation is by grace, not works, through Jesus. Chapter 4, Abraham, our Jewish father, was saved by grace through faith. And now let's read the continuation of that. Romans 5, 1 to 5, there it is. I'm going to go ahead and read this. Therefore, Paul says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on this. Father, we do pray that you would renew our minds. Jesus, you prayed for us. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. We hold this word before you, and we ask you to teach us. Do it for us, we ask, for your glory. Amen. So, as I said, Romans chapters 1 and 2 show that we're all sinners. 3 and 4 show us that the fountain of salvation in Christ is by grace through faith, which he then encapsulates in one sentence in uh, chapter 5 verse 1 when he says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then out of this fountain of justification and peace, we see a river of benefits, access to a throne, a standing in grace, the hope of glory, joy even in afflictions. And these are the things that make up the normal Christian life. Okay, Stillwater pioneers, are you ready to dig down into the words? That doesn't sound like it. (laughs) So Paul begins with the word justified. We have been justified, which means to be shown to be right or righteous. You have met the conditions and you are declared or pronounced right or righteous before God. It can be a legal term. God is the judge, and he has declared you not guilty. You're acquitted. You're justified. You are declared righteous. I never like that court definition, though, by the way, because when God justifies us, how many judges would do this? Okay, I justify you. Now come live in my house and be my son and daughter. <laughs> anyway, that's beside the point. But we are declared righteous. That only makes sense that we're justified by Christ through faith because we know from chapters 1 and 2 that we couldn't be justified or counted righteous by ourselves because we're sinners, but rather we're justified or counted righteous by believing in Jesus Christ and resting on His perfect life and efficacious death. Then Paul says justified in a different way. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is not just peace as in a peace of mind, or like, peace, man, or, you know, or, I'm content, life is good. It's not that kind of peace. No, he means reconciliation, that kind of peace. I was at enmity with God. I was an enemy of God. Christ, our peace, our Prince of Peace, our Peacemaker, atoned the Trinity For our sinful souls through His blood. That's how we have peace. It's the peace in the sense of Isaiah 40. Your warfare is finally finished. Your sins are pardoned. That's the peace he's talking about. Last week, Ryan talked about knowledge in your last week's sermon. And he talked about it as intimately knowing God and His ways. Question, do we know justification? Do we know it in our bones? Do you know experientially that God's wrath has been satisfied toward you? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Do you know in the sense of daily experiencing and loving and receiving motivation and gratitude from your peace with God? How about when you sin? Christians sin, right? But when you sin, Christian, in the depths of your soul, somewhere do you think God hates you just a little bit? Do you think He's out to get you? Well, let's think about that for a second. Our, uh, when Christians sin, our relationship with God is just that. It's a relationship, and relationships are not simple and one-dimensional. God is holy. But through His Son, whom He determined to put to death for us, by the way, through Him, His justice has been satisfied. We're given a new, spiritual, heavenly nature. The whole trinity, as it were, moves into our souls. But what do we do when we sin? That seems unnatural in in this case. The entire trinity hates sin. Part of us now hates sin. Paul says, in my mind, I serve the law of God. He said, I delight in the law of God in the inward being. So how are we supposed to feel when we sin as Christians? Well, my easy answer would be, like a child feels when they let down their good parents. I'm sorry, Father. I sinned. I'm weak. Help me. I know you love me. I love you too. Would you change me? Would you show me any obstacles I put up that restrict change? Thank you for being good and compassionate and patient and understanding. That's the victorious language of the ordinary Christian. Don't let the devil steal your joy of justification. He's the leader of the cosmic forces of darkness. He loves to darken our minds with ignorance so that we don't understand things like justification. He's a liar. He'll whisper that God is harsh and exacting, and that, that's not true. He's the accuser. He'll tell you you're making a mess of Christianity, and you should probably just give up. We live on the love of God. That's our strength in this life. If we don't really know that God is reconciled to us, that he loves us, we don't have much to give to other people. And notice in verse 1, keeping going here with the text, the justification is through faith, not by our own goodness. This will never make sense to the natural man. Let me just uh, play the natural man for a second. This is a one-act play called The Natural Man. Not really. Natural man. Wait, 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 wait. You're telling me I get a loving trinity in an eternal heaven for nothing. For believing. Yep. Well, I mean, it took the father giving up his son and the life and death of the son of God. Oh, okay, good one. But but still, I just accept it like a gift. I wasn't raised to take handouts. (laughs) Well, you're going to take this one. Well, that's not enough. You think you're going to earn it? (laughs) Listen, why don't you take all that anxiousness to pay for your salvation and turn it into wonder and gratitude and thanksgiving for the greatest gift ever given? (sighs) Wait, you said it's by faith. So, obviously... My faith is what brings this blessing to me. I'm glad I get to contribute something. Wrong again, turtle breath. (laughs) Faith is a gift. Faith is the empty beggar's hand that receives the alms of Christ. Christ is the light. Faith is the window that lets the light in. God writes this great promise of free justification. You respond... By believing it. But that's nothing. Truly believing the great promises of the scriptures is the greatest response there is. Let's keep going. Let's see what other fish are in this river. Verse 2, through him, that is Jesus Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So here are two benefits of justification. Free access to God And two, a standing in His grace. Access. Access to God. I don't think we really appreciate this in our egalitarian age. Everybody's equal. Nobody's above me. Right? I might put on a tie for the president, but nobody's better than me. No one is to be honored. I don't have to be thankful or astounded that I get to be in someone's presence. By contrast, Paul would be thinking about the High priest, the Jewish high priest, and how often uh, he got to have access into the presence chamber of God. Bible trivia. How often did the high priest get to go into the go ahead. Once a year. How many people got to do this, by the way? One... So one person out of the whole Jewish nation once a year got to actually go into the presence of God. That's what Paul would be thinking. That would be the contrast to what he's talking about with free access. It reminds me of um, Esther and the virgins. Okay, we did well in that Bible trivia. How about this? Which king did uh, Esther go before, and how often did the virgins get to go before this king? All right, this is getting more difficult. Anybody? Ahasuerus, right, and how often did the virgins get to go before Yes, so it's once every 12 months, once a year again, unless he called uh, back. So those are the kind of access points that Paul would be thinking about. Compare that with our God, who is, by the way, much more holy than Ahasuerus ever thought about. Not only he extends the royal scepter of acceptance, but he calls us and woos us into his presence and says things like, You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You've ravished my heart with one of your eyes. That is beyond belief good news. Notice we have access into grace. Grace is free favor. So in other words, God is not just reconciled to us. He doesn't have a beef with us anymore. No, we stand in grace and favor. His kindness envelops us. His goodness and mercy chase after us. Grace is a comprehensive word. It includes help, comfort, support, forgiveness, strength, joy, power, patience. For a comparison, compare that with someone like me. Uh, I don't have a problem with most people. You know, I'm reconciled with most people. But I'm not trying to chase them down and do good to them. Uh, No. But that's what grace is like. And notice it's a standing in grace, which implies confidence. We stand in grace, not bowed down by the law, but standing and looking up to heaven. It implies a fullness, like standing in an ocean. Anybody ever been to an ocean or a great lake or the Carsons here? You ever been to the ocean? Nobody? Okay. <laughs> I'll tell you what it's like. Yeah, of course. So you're, you're, you get like the water's up to your hips, and you look out at the ocean, and for 180 degrees, it's like there's nothing but water. I mean, it's amazing. That's what standing in grace is like. Or it's like a farmer. We, so few people are farmers these days, so the farmer uh, metaphors have kind of gone, taken a turn for the worse. But anyway, it's like a farmer in a huge grain of ripe, you know, of what am I saying? In a huge field of ripe grain. It's like there's grain everywhere. That's what standing in grace is like. Let uh, Let me ask another niggling question. The scriptures are profitable for reproof, so this is good for us. Question, do you and I live independently of God's grace? God's grace, His love, His favor is our power source. We will wear out on our own and we'll do a bad job of it in the meantime if we don't get graced up. It's, it's really funny. In sanctification, God gives the power, but we do the stuff. So there's this, there's this joint effort. There's this joint working. So it's easy to fall into the, to one of two ditches. Well, God has all the power, so I'm not going to do anything. That's the ditch of sloth and laziness. Or there's the ditch of self-effort. Well, God gives the power, but I don't know how to get... No, I don't even... No, I don't want to be around Him. So if you want to do something right, you got to do it yourself. So those are the two ditches we don't want to do. And you see this joint effort in a verse like this, which is very strange. Hebrews 12, 28. Paul says... Sorry, I think Paul wrote Hebrews. That probably... Anyway, it doesn't matter. Since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Grace to serve. Or here's a better one, 1 Corinthians 15.10. Paul says, God's grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Can we learn to be diligent in God's grace? Can we, in His strength, work hard? That's not so easy. Another question Do you think, again, somewhere in the deep recesses of your mind, the only way to have access into grace is through sorrow for sin and repentance and good works? These are good things as fruits of His grace. But we can't make a Christ of them. We have access and favor through Christ, not through our penance or good good deeds. The next question, are we standing in grace? Do we see grace all around us? Is God's goodness and mercy following us? Or have we choked up our lives uh, through the three things Jesus talked about? The worries of this world, the deceitfulness of having money, or the desires for other things, that grace gets crowded out. It shouldn't be with it that way. We should get with the Lord and repent. Okay, let's keep moving in this uh, passage. We have access and a standing in grace. And now he adds, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Or to use a recent translation, we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing in God's glory. So, Our joy comes from all the heavenly blessings we have now, plus the full enjoyment of them to all eternity when we die. We get the first fruits now, but the bushel basket is coming. But I want it all now. Well, honey, you'll have to wait. But it's a waiting like most of us waited for Christmas when we were young. It's going to be good. Or it's like waiting for summer when we're school kids and it's early May. This is really going to be good. <clears throat> Thinking of glory, I can't help but think about the poor people. you ever thought about the poor people who don't have hope for the next life? Who have to get all their joy out of this life? That's a short and losing game. But as Christians, we know we shall share in God's glory, and it motivates us now. Have you ever wondered what glory is? It's, a, it's one of those vague words. We get glory. That's like getting that Christmas present. You know, <laughs> rock and roll. We good? I don't know. Uh, you ever got a Christmas present? And you think, oh, thank you. I wonder what that is. It must be a blanket. I don't, I don't really know. But, so what is glory? That's the question. Our inheritance, our reward is Glory. I came up with my own definition, so you're absolutely free to reject it, okay? Here's my definition of glory. Glory is the outward or physical manifestations of God's inward excellencies. For instance, God is wise, and so he creates complex creatures, and we see his glory in those. God is powerful, and we see it in the Rocky Mountains. God is holy and it's manifested as light and His angels and stars are full of light. He's truth and so the word that He speaks is true. So the glory that we'll receive will be without sin, sickness, or death to be changed inwardly to be like God, to be able to clearly see Him for what He's really like And so we'll adore him and love each other forever. That sounds good, doesn't it? (laughs) Let's go. Uh, Question. Here come the questions again. Do you rejoice in hope of the future glory that comes from God? Or are you so earthly minded that you're always looking down at this world, never up, so that, you know, we become... No heavenly good, and no earthly good for that matter. It reminds me of the sandworms in Dune. Anybody read Dune? The sandworms. Or Tremors. Anybody Tremors fans out there? Like those sandworms. Yeah. Or the ground squirrels in my backyard, which I need to somehow get rid of. Or better yet, the evil angel Mammon in Paradise Lost. Okay, so now we're going to read a bit of poetry. Um, This is Mammon. He's not interested in God or heaven at all, but he keeps his eyes always downward. Uh, in this passage that I'm going to read, Satan has just fallen from heaven with all his angels, and they're going to build, they're tr- trying to figure out how can we go to war with God. So they're going to build this hall where they can hold their war summit. All right, and this is the description of mammon. Yeah, here we go. <clears throat> There stood a hill not far whose grisly top belched fire and rolling smoke. The rest entire shone with a glossy scurf, undoubted sign that in his womb was hid metallic ore, the work of sulfur. Thither winged with speed a numerous brigand hastened, as when bands of pioneers with spade and pickaxe armed forerun the royal camp to trench a field or cast a rampart. Mammon led them on, mammon the least erected spirit that fell from heaven. For even in heaven, his looks and thoughts were always downward bent, admiring more the riches of heaven's pavement, trodden gold than aught divine or holy else enjoyed in vision beatific. Okay, thank you, Dan. And thank you for listening to the poem. <laughs> Back to verse 3. So we don't want to be like mammon. Not only that, Paul says, that is, not only do we rejoice in hope, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Rejoice in sufferings? Are we sadists? Do we enjoy pain? I think about Jack Nicholson in the dentist chair in the 60s version of Little Shop of Horrors. Anybody? Very few. No, as Christians, we feel suffering as suffering. But we play the long game. We know ahead of time that suffering is going to produce more hope in the end. We start the, the process of trial, rejoicing in hope of the glory of God, and we end stronger. Yeah! Will Christians encounter suffering? Most assuredly. The pathway to glory is the path of suffering. Our master suffered and was glorified, and so we will suffer and be glorified. Man is born for trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward, Job reminded us. Uh, old Jacob, when he stood before Pharaoh, he was 130 years old, and he told uh, Pharaoh, "Let me tell you about my life. It's been a cakewalk." Anybody remember what he said back in class? He said, "Few and evil have been my days. I don't want to talk about the few, but evil. My life's been hard. It's difficult. There will be trials." Paul strengthened and encouraged the churches in Acts 14 by reminding them, after he had just been stoned at Lystra, that we must, through many afflictions, enter into the kingdom of God. He encouraged them with that. How's that encouraging? Well, we have a kingdom uh, of God that we're going to enter when we die. And it's also encouraging, in some sense, to know that afflictions are coming so that we can be prepared Experience without previous teaching is a rotten, costly teacher. So let's prepare ourselves ahead of time. And it's verses just like this that get us ready. Paul here brings out other benefits of suffering for us to think about. Suffering, though evil, has many huge and necessary benefits to it. Here's the process in a nutshell. Just look at verses 3 and 4. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Okay? So we started with rejoicing in hope of glory. Bad things come our way. And we end with a more secure hope as we watch God carry us through. In fact, God uses suffering to increase our hope. Is is He mean? No, but He wants us to seek Him and love Him and be filled with His fullness to see that the weaker we get the stronger He gets. And there's nothing like affliction to make you look up. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Imagine if we spent all our days on earth and everything was good. It was like the Garden of Eden. How quickly would we forget about God? Also, He ordains suffering for us because He's training us to be soldiers because the spiritual fight is real. This world is like our basic training. And we have a choice. Do we want trials to make us ornery Christian soldiers? You know that guy in the movie? There's always one guy in a, in a war movie, and he's hardened, and he's cynical, and he hates it, and he makes it his business to make all the new recruits miserable. You know the guy I'm talking about in the war movie? You don't want to be that guy as a Christian. Don't let trials do that to you. Or do we want to be the good guy in the war movie? The Tom Hanks in Saving Private Ryan, or the Brad Pitt in Fury. He understands that war is sometimes a necessary evil, but it must be endured for hopefully some greater good. And he tries to make the best of a bad business, and he encourages his fellow soldiers. That's how we want to go through trials. Okay, my time's about up, so I'm not going to go into endurance and character. But I will ask this question, again, niggling question. Do difficulties in life make you just wilt? Or are you able to bear up under them, realizing the good they do for you, and all the while living on the love of God in the trial? That can and should be our very normal Christian lives, our mere Christianity. To finish, let's read about that love that sustains us in our suffering. Verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Our hope of eternal life and glory does not put us to shame. That is, it's not a false hope. It will happen. I was listening to um, Led Zeppelin the other day. Uh, The song Remains a Stain, the live album. Anybody? Okay, there's one, one person. So, you, you, and I was listening, I'm sorry, it's so cliche, but I, the song Stairway to Heaven was on, and so he sings the song, and it's not like the studio version, because he, he sings, There's still time to change the road you're on. And that's how it goes, and it goes on to the next line in the studio version. But in the live album, he adds this, There's still time to change the road you're on. I hope so. <laughs> God's promises are not, I hope so, or maybe, our hope will not be disappointed. And to cheer us while we wait, God pours his love into us through the Holy Spirit. The prophet Joel said that he would pour out his spirit on all flesh, and he does, like like the box of costly ointment which the woman poured on Christ's head. This good spirit is the spirit of adoption. And the first thing he teaches us is to look up and say, Abba, Father. Let me pray for us. Abba, Father. Jesus, when you faced your greatest trial, separation from the Father, you earnestly prayed those words, Abba, Father. And then you rejoined Him. Give us grace to never doubt your love, no matter what happens. We ask through our justifier Jesus Christ, the righteous one, amen.